Turn, if you would, this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 20 verses. Mark, chapter 4, 1 through 20. I hope you've had an opportunity at one point or another to reflect on the importance of the Word of God. In many churches, unfortunately, there is a famine of the Word of God. But, you know, even if preachers fail to proclaim it, the sheer availability of the Word of God electronically in book form on apps in all kinds of ways is evidence that the Word is being sown. And that's the subject of our text this morning, is the Word of God and its impact on people. Follow along as I read perhaps one of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught to his disciples. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things Enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, give us ears to hear your word this day. Remind us, remind us of our need for your word. Apart from the gospel revealed in your word, we have no hope. We 
pray, Lord, that you would let your word go forth with great power, convince and convict us of our sin, remind us of our Savior, and Lord, help us to apply these words to our heart and our lives. I pray, Father, that any words spoken inconsistent with your own may pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, many of you realize I had asked for prayer, and I know I received it. Many people have told me they prayed for me while I preached at my brother's funeral. And perhaps one of the most important things I did in that message was an impassioned plea to family members, some of whom I had not seen for decades, that my brother and I had something in common more important than blood. I said both of us had staked our lives in different ways or in different circumstances through life, but we had staked our lives on the fact that the Bible is true and is God's very word. My desire for the listeners, my nephews and my nieces, my aunts that were there, my siblings and in-laws, their extended family, churchgoers, co-workers, even a neighbor of my brother's. For many of them, I would just have one contact, perhaps in my entire life with them. And yet, I understood that nothing I did could change them. But God's word can. The only importance I had in that one impact in their lives, first of all, was that I treated them well. But secondly, that God's word sown. You see, this passage reminds us the word of God is being sown. The word of God, however, must be revealed to individuals for them to believe it. But the word will, and this is one of the great promises of scripture, the word will bear fruit. First of all, the word of God is being sown. If you hadn't noticed, it begins with teaching by Jesus. What a circumstance. Here he is. This is the time period in Jesus' ministry where great crowds are coming out to follow him wherever he goes. It seems that when he goes into a house, it's so packed they can hardly move. They can't even eat. When he goes out into the uh, outside, in the outside, you can have more people, but it's so crowded that he couldn't even sit on the land with them. He went out onto a boat in the lake. So the word of God is being sown, first of all, in this passage, by Jesus in his ministry. Notice this, this large crowd gathers. It's kind of a great picturesque thing. We, you know, we could go a few blocks down the road and do the same thing, couldn't we? If somebody had a boat, I could go sit in the boat as a teacher and have everybody else sit on the shore and sit in a big amphitheater type arrangement of some sort, and we could do that. This is what Jesus did. In fact, some people think that with this massive crowd or these crowds that would follow him, uh, the Sea of Galilee in places then has hills up on the shore so that it would actually serve as a kind of an echoing opportunity for him to speak in such a way that he was easily heard. Whatever it is, there's a lot of people there. And interesting, Jesus begins to teach them and his teaching is in parables. He's teaching in parables from a boat by the sea. 
And this is evidently one of the main ways in which he taught these great crowds through the next couple of years was in these parables. Now, perhaps you've heard all kinds of definitions of what a parable is. I'm not going to add to all those definitions. We know that sometimes parables uh, refer to things that that have a different meaning than the the story uh, in a literal sense. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily figurative or allegorical, but it means that we get the meaning from this well-known culturally contexted story, things about agriculture or things about uh, leadership or other things. And as we look at that, we know there's a meaning there that's revealed through this parable. But it's not just the teaching of the crowds and parables that goes forth. If that's all that happens, we understand that this particular point in time, especially since the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon the people of God, to dwell in them with power, they didn't understand these parables. So Jesus' teaching continued in verses 10 and following. Notice what it says. When Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So on the one hand, he's teaching the crowd in parables. This is God's very word, the word incarnate in flesh dwelling upon them or among them in the person of Jesus. But Jesus giving them the very word of God through parables. But he's also giving God's kingdom secret or secrets to his followers. He's revealing to them the meaning of the word that he's being given in parables. And notice this. It's never stopped, has it? Jesus began teaching the word of God both from the Old Testament and from his revelation, giving to them what the Father had passed on to him. He says, I do everything the Father is doing. What he does, I does, and I I do, and I pass it on to you. But now it's ongoing through what primary instrument? The church. The church should be all about sowing the word of God. Of course, you know, perhaps in this particular thing, this was an agricultural community. There's an agricultural context here of sowing seed. And we can go through all the understanding. What does it mean? Some people will say, well, this was a, this was a terrible sower. He's throwing the seed everywhere. Well, you have to understand the context here. The people who were familiar with this would have known how agriculture took place in those days. You see, they plowed after they threw the seed. So they didn't necessarily know where the rocky ground was or where uh, the the path was going to be, whether it was going to be actually uh, there on the field or whether it's a place they could plow up and find uh, uh, plants coming up out of the ground. So here in this context... The sowing came before the plowing. And so this was entirely possible that this good sower is out there throwing the seed everywhere like he's supposed to do. And then they would come back and they plow it and they find out that some of the ground was better prepared for these plants to grow than others. But the point is this. The word is being sown. Last Sunday I had the privilege of worshiping at another church where my brother attended worship. 
I don't like to say good or bad things about the church or anything like that, but I did notice one little interesting thing. The word sin never occurred in that entire worship service in a, until the second to the last song before we dismissed. They were having and celebrating the Lord's Supper that day. They were preaching. They were singing and praising God and doing all those things. But that very important word that should occur, in my opinion, on just about every worship service that is there because it tells us our condition and our need for Jesus Christ is that word sin. But you know there was a songwriter who wrote that song. And even if a church doesn't proclaim that concept of sin, that songwriter who wrote that word sin in that song, every time that song is sung, it wasn't an old, ancient hymn. It was a newer song that had good and rich theology in it. But that songwriter has planted the word of God, and every time that song is sung, there is that word, biblical, theologically true, that is planted in the hearers. The word is being sown despite churches that may not be faithful, despite preachers that may not know what they're doing, despite teachers that don't understand it, despite all those things, we have the promise that God will always be about building his kingdom, the church. The word is being sown. But even though that word is being sown, we know that it does not bear fruit in every individual. In fact, we also know from this passage, it will bear fruit in no individual unless that word is revealed to them. Sometimes we skip over verse 9, don't we? He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I guarantee you, 95 to 99% or perhaps even 100% of his crowd had physical ears on their head, right? So in one sense, we understand, he's saying, okay, you have ears, now hear the word. But we also know that when he says this, there's a deeper meaning to this. In fact, we see this as well in the book of Revelation, when John is talking to the churches and is exposing to them both the good and the bad in their churches and is warning them of the judgment to come and their need to be faithful to God in times of persecution and controversy and false teaching. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here, what does that mean? It means we must have ears that are given through the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul puts it another way. He says, you cannot understand spiritual things unless you have the Holy Spirit. In other words, God must reveal to you the word in order for it to be fruitful. And remember, what's he doing? He's teaching them in parables, verse 11 says this. It says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. What does he mean? For those outside. Now in context here, those that were outside the home looking for Jesus were his own family members. And we know that his own family members 
rejected his identity at this point in time. Some of them would come to understand and believe in Jesus later after his resurrection. But right now they thought he was a crazy person. And in fact, there were other people in the crowd, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, who had just accused him of being possessed by a demon. They thought he was insane or demon-possessed. Those outside here, in one sense, could literally mean his family. But of course, I think what he means here is those outside the kingdom. Those outside the kingdom could have meant here those outside the circle of disciples. Here the disciples did not mean just the twelve. You'll notice here it says those around him with the twelve. It's a greater uh, group of people than just those twelve here. But it's those that had his ear, so to speak. Those who were sitting at his feet. Those who got the inside information. Those who he had chosen we're told earlier in this book that he chose a group of people to come up with him, and out of that group he chose 12 apostles. These are the ones who got the explanation of what the parables were. And this was fulfilling, he says, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Now it's interesting. This was just read. Isaiah 6 was just read by Steve here a few minutes ago. We're understanding that when Isaiah was called to be a prophet to the people, he was called to give that word to the people of God. And he says, when you give that word, on the one hand, it's a great word. But on the other hand, it's also judgment. Because this people will not understand it. They won't hear it. They won't believe it. They will react violently against it. And in fact, by the end of the chapter, you get the idea that by and large, the entire people of Israel are going to reject the word of Isaiah, except for a stump, the holy seed, a remnant. And why them? Because God was working faith in them that they might have ears to hear it and to respond to it. The other interesting thing about this particular parable is remember by this point in Mark, the real prevailing question of the people, particularly his disciples, may have been, why is Jesus getting such a mixed response? Why does he have some people that will follow him and believe in him, other people that will call him crazy, others that just false or don't believe at all, and others who will claim he's possessed by demons. Why is this all the reaction? And he says to them, this is the parable of parables. If you don't understand this parable, you're probably not going to understand any of the others either. This is the parable of all parables. In other words, this is the introductory parable 101 class. This is where the, the main parable for you to understand the things of the kingdom of God. And that is this. You have to have it revealed to you by God. This seed that is being sown is the very word of God. I have to say, you know, some folks are just not mechanical minded. You know, if you try to explain to them how an internal combustion engine works, they're going to look at you cross-eyed like you have no, no idea what you're talking about. There are other people 
who are not visually minded. You can take them to a map or to some other kind of visual thing and try to point out to them how to get from point A to point B, and they can't do it. There was a big joke at my brother's funeral. My brother's one of the worst guys with directions. And so there were two or three family members who got up and talked about my brother, and inevitably they would mention his inability to go from point A to point B. He just, for whatever reason, he had no sense of direction. And he couldn't get there. But yet, how valuable could be something like a GPS or something like that? But you just couldn't get through to him how to get from point A to point B. Was he a stupid person? No, obviously not. He was also not someone who was slow in other things. He was, he was very intelligent. In fact, I don't know many people who could beat him at strategy-type games or types of things like that. Puzzles and stuff like that were very easy to him. But when it came to directions, forget it. We need the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual things. Unless we have that spirit, that is unless the spirit has opened our hearts to believe the word of Jesus is true. We will not understand it. We will not be able to obey it. We will not be able to deal with it in a godly fashion. But thanks be to God, the word will bear fruit because he will reveal it to some. And of course, here is the parable itself. Perhaps this is the teaching you expected when we read this parable, going through all of these different groups of people who respond to God's word. Jesus gives the meaning. These dull-minded disciples that did not understand this parable, and you and I, who probably don't understand it either, except for Jesus' teaching, he says, do you not understand this? And here he gives the definition or the understanding, the meaning. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. If they didn't get it yet, here it is. The, the seed is the word of God. And here are the first groups. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You see, the word will bear fruit, but not on hard hearts. Matthew says that this group had no understanding. They didn't understand the word of God. Luke says this group had no belief or salvation. In other words, these were people who were not believers. They had these hard hearts that had not been softened by the Holy Spirit, Regeneration of our hearts comes before our faith. Unless the Lord God, by His Spirit, is working on our hearts, we in the end will fail to understand or believe the Word of God and be saved. And it says here one of the most frustrating things, because Satan takes the Word away. Luke says, I think the devil means the same thing. It means that there's one group of people, because they are not believers, Satan comes in and just whisks the word away, and there's no effect on these hard hearts. These are folks who might come to church this morning. You're busy about your life. You're really uninterested in how this word is really going to impact and change you. 
You might be somehow offended when the pastor says to you, you're a sinner in need of salvation. You are so wicked that you will die in your sins unless you turn from them and believe upon Jesus Christ. You might say, but I like my sins, and I'm too busy to do all this. It's going to take all kinds of repercussions if I do those things. You're somehow offended by the situation. Your hearts are hard, and you refuse to let this word impact you. Jesus says this is the first group, and you think, wow, if that's true, how can God's word bear fruit? So it goes to the second group. Here he is. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You see, God's word will bear fruit, but not on shallow hearts. Notice the word, it has no root. When I came this week back from our trip, I noticed on the exit here from Grissom Parkway on to 17, when you go on that, that entrance ramp, there's a tree that's been slowly coming over onto the side. Now this morning, for the first time, there are orange cones around it so that you don't run into that tree that's coming down onto the road. Now, for a long time, it looked like that tree had solid roots because it's got a pretty thick trunk. But evidently, they weren't solid enough to keep that tree standing upwards. And now, because of those shallow roots, that tree has fallen down. You see, if you have no root, the faith you proclaim to have is only temporal. Matthew says it endures for a while, as does Mark. Luke says, they believe for a while. I don't know what it is they believe. They evidently don't believe the words of Jesus that if you believe in him, you will be persecuted. You will go through difficult times. You can't just go through life as a believer and think that not everything is going to be hunky-dory and everything is going to fall into place. You're not going to get sick. Your finances are going to be fine. Your relationships will be wonderful. That's not realistic, and that's not true. And so when affliction or persecution comes, what happens? They are scandalized. Affliction and persecution scandalizes them. That's the literal sense of the word here in the Greek. When it says here, they fall away. They stumble. We get that English word scandalized from this Greek word. To them, it's a scandal to think that if they believe in Jesus, something bad is going to happen. I remember my kids liked to watch an old Disney movie called Hot Lead and Old Feet. And one of the characters is a, is a good twin, and the other character is a bad twin. The good twin is, as they call it, a tambour tambourine whacker out east. And he's with the Salvation Army or something like that out there. And they're always singing this song, something good is bound to happen. This is the shallow faith. The faith that thinks that nothing bad is going to happen. These are shallow hearts. You see, there's often a group of people who, when they first hear the word of God, they respond with an emotional response, with great joy, that here, once 
For the first time, perhaps, they've heard the word of God that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins, in Christ there is life eternal, and there are all kinds of blessings. And they emotionally respond to that, perhaps with great emotion. Perhaps there are those individuals who begin to go out and tell all their family and friends the wonders of the kingdom of God. And then when something difficult takes place, as God is determined to season them so that they will understand their, their faith being matured by difficult experiences, they look at that and they think, this isn't what I signed up for. There's no intellectual component. There, there's no grasping that this is the way of God regardless of what circumstances he brings into our life. And these shallow hearts bear no fruit. That's the second group. You think, well, if it doesn't bear fruit in hard hearts, it doesn't bear fruit in shallow hearts. I can see myself in these two groups. Does that mean that the word of God really bears fruit? Well, here's the third group. It says here, the others are the ones sown among thorns. Verse 18. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You see, they have divided hearts. They're choked by the anxious interests of the age. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We all have interests right now. We have children, we have grandchildren, we have spouses, we have jobs. We have our retirement accounts that are quickly ebbing away. We have all kinds of different interests in this life. And if our whole life is wrapped up in anxiety about these interests, what is important to us? The interests or the kingdom. If you're so worried about your 401k and your retirement, what about the kingdom? If you're so worried about your family and your children and your grandchildren and the anxiousness envelops you, where is your faith? Where is your hope? Is it in these things or is it in the kingdom of God? They're also choked by the enticement of riches. Are riches enticing? Yeah. You know, if I had just invested in property here in my first year in Myrtle Beach, I could get a return of nearly 50% of my investments just six years ago. Now, those investments aren't quite as good today as they were six months to a year ago. But if I was totally caught up in the ability to make money, and I was enticed by these riches, not just in real estate, but by the salary I get, by the gift cards that, that give me money when I go to Sam's Club and I can get that little saving, by the coupons I cut, by, by all the methods and means, these things in and of themselves are not necessarily evil, but if the enticement of gaining wealth is my goal in life, we cannot serve two masters, can we? Our hearts are divided. It's also choked by desires for other things. What is Mark talking about? Luke says these are the pleasures of life. You know the pleasures of life. 
the guy in Ecclesiastes talks about when he gets old, he can't enjoy some of these pleasures. His teeth no longer work properly. His taste buds no longer work properly. He can't enjoy all the food and be a glutton like he might have been when he was younger. His eyes don't work. In other parts of his body doesn't work. He can't enjoy some of the pleasures that all the world is saying we're supposed to enjoy. But this group of people, there might be some even here in church this morning. Your life is really not about the kingdom of God. This is a sideshow. This is just coming to check your boxes, perhaps. Or maybe it's just coming because you have a curiosity, or maybe it's coming for some other reason. But once you leave these doors, your life is out there, and it's about the things of the world and not the kingdom of God. And so there's no understanding or submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is terrible. We've got three groups now. Hard hearts, shallow hearts, divided hearts. None of them are going to bear fruit. Do we have any hope? Well, the good thing is this. There are three more groups. Lest you think there's one, there's actually three more groups. Notice what it says. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Here are the three groups, those who bear 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Luke says this, these are good and honest hearts. I don't know what killed my brother. The autopsy showed that he did not have a heart attack and he did not have a stroke but they said it was because of arteriosclerosis in some fashion. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know exactly how my brother died. So, but in one sense, I think, well, maybe he didn't really have a good heart. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a heart that is responsive to the word of God. That accepts it, as it says here. I think the better word is receives it and bears fruit. Though there are those who hear the word, receive the word, and bear fruit. In other words, they have ears to hear. They have the spirit that's working in their heart. They have the ability to understand this word not because of their intellect or because of their wonderful uh, discerning abilities but because the Holy Spirit has worked in their life to give them ears to hear it and Matthew says these are those who understand it notice he doesn't say these are the seminary graduates and he doesn't say these are the individuals who can quote the Westminster Catechism and recite it a good thing by the way He's not saying these are the ones who are the smartest and the brightest and the deepest thinkers and the ones who spend the most time studying the word to the nth degree. He says these are those who understand it and receive it. I remember early in my ministry, I had a lady who really was kind of crazy. She didn't come to church anymore. She had long since lost the ability to see. She was blind, totally. She didn't come to church, but I would visit her on a regular basis. We'd sit down and we'd talk 
about all kinds of things, you know, some of the crazy things that she wanted to talk about. But inevitably, we would come and we would talk about the Word. She couldn't see to read it anymore. She had people who would read it to her. She would have a tape recorder or something like that that she could use in order for her to hear the sermons or hear uh, the reading of the scriptures and so forth. But that woman knew her Bible. And I was set up that woman's theology. She's long gone now. I was set up that woman's theology, perhaps even unable to say some of the fancy words that theologians use. I would hold up her understanding and knowledge of scripture and theology against some of the most important and wonderful teachers of the church today. Why is that? Because she had a heart that was open to hear and receive the gospel and word of God. You see, these are those who have a total commitment to the Lord over the long haul. They hold it fast, and it says here, bear fruit, as Luke says, in patience. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? They didn't have an immediate response that seemed to be overwhelming, filled with joy, emotional, and perhaps even convicting to others. God can use even false believers to, to expand his kingdom when his word goes forth. But these are individuals. Over the long haul, when even difficult experiences come, persecution comes on the church, disease comes, your wealth disappears, your relationships soil, your family falls apart. Even through these times, your response to the word is such that people know you believe in Jesus Christ. Notice here there are three groups of fruit bearers. Some commentators say they seem to balance out the three groups of non-fruit bearers. I don't necessarily think that because scripture is always telling us that the number of people who truly believe in him are few and are a remnant and are along the narrow path, not the broad road that leads to destruction. But Jesus really, instead of a parable, he could have just said this. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, the word shall not go forth and return empty or void. The word will bear fruit. I really had a chance to reflect this week and last week. First of all, because of my travels and also because of some illness. On preaching and teaching. Yeah, I think about that perhaps more than other people do. But I thought really that teaching and preaching is not about our ideas, philosophy, psychology, or the latest fads, is it? It's not about self-help. It's not motivational speaking. It's not philosophical. Simply God's word. We preach and teach the word. Yes, I've been taught, and I'll say this to you, if you want to teach the word of God, be prepared to explain it, to illustrate it, to apply it to your listeners but it's not these things and these efforts that change people. It is God's word by the power of his spirit that convicts and changes sinners. 
Yes, do all those things, explain, illustrate, apply, go through all the background and the exegesis work, do all the work that's necessary to study the scripture so you can understand it for yourself, but understand even this understanding is not your own, it's by the Spirit of God, because God sows it. Who is the sower? It's the Holy Spirit. And God must reveal it to his people. We understand that I can go out and be the best preacher and speaker and teacher in the universe, but by my power and the, my wordsmithing and all of the preparation work that I do, I cannot save a soul. But God's word can. And it will bear fruit. You know, it's interesting. The 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, we're reminded we don't judge somebody's faith based on the results, do we? We, in the end, can't know if somebody else truly believes in the Lord. But we can't expect, when they believe in the Lord, that they can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that word going forth through their faith will have an impact on others. It's interesting. A hundredfold seems like it's an unrealistic or unexpected amount. It's a huge amount, and yet we're reminded back in Genesis 26 that Isaac himself experienced what it was like to have a hundredfold harvest in literal agriculture. If God can bless him in those days with the, this less intelligence or less ability and less technology of agriculture to have a hundredfold crop, how much more can God give the church? A hundredfold blessing when we believe and respond to the gospel of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is an encouraging parable. God's kingdom is advancing, and he is giving his people ears to hear. If you have that ear, let you hear. That is, hear, obey, respond in faith to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for this parable. Help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to respond to it in faith, not with the hard, shallow, or divided hearts, but, Lord, with the good and honest heart, because you have softened us, you have exposed our sins, and we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, turning from our sins, believing upon him, and then seeking, Lord, by your power again to follow you. Help us to have ears to hear and to remember that your word will not go forth void. In Jesus' name.